Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with artist and musician Robbie Gonzalez. Robbie's had an affinity for music since he was a kid, back when his uncle taught him how to sit on the drums and play a basic beat. In 2006, that took a more tangible shape in the form of two projects. One was Robbie's solo project called Robot, where he produced ambient music that, he says, would fit a sci-fi movie. The other project was called Raw Beats, where he teamed up with his best friend, Max Kuzor. They both played the drums at the same time, while sharing a kick drum. In 2012, Robbie started drumming for A Place to Bury Strangers, a rock band known for their loud, atmospheric performances. He eventually quit so he could pursue a career as a hairdresser. But after he got his hair license, he joined another band, This Will Destroy You. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber. Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Robbie Gonzalez. In the first issue of Crude Magazine, back in 2013, I interviewed Robbie and described him as tangential, not scatterbrained. And I think that still holds true. He always seems to make it back to his original point. In this conversation, like many others I've had with him, we talk about following the unconventional path of an artist and a musician, and where that leads. How there are benefits and there are pitfalls to pursuing that tumultuous and uncertain road. So here he is. Robbie Gonzalez. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. So you just got off work, right? Yeah, and I'm just now crawling into this closet for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Back in the closet. Okay. <laughs> and that's so we can get good audio. Yeah. Great, great trick. Um, yeah, I just got back from working at Death by Audio. My good friend and former bandmate, sometimes bandmate still, um, Oliver Ackerman. He makes um, guitar effects pedals. And... You know, it was one of those things in between tours, I would pick up some shifts, he'd kick me down whatever and like teach me how to do this stuff. And uh, it's allowed me to have work in between tour. Now that no one's touring now, you know, like Mm -hmm. he, he, we caught up one day when I got back from, I was in Arizona, we'll get to that. (laughs) But um, 
and he asked if I needed some work and I was like yeah man I'm not working so let's do it so now I've been working there I'm there um, four days a week and then two at a salon doing the hair thing yeah and how did the the hair thing come about well like four years ago I I don't know if I think you and I spoke about it maybe in Alaska or something when I saw you, but I, uh, I just got tired of touring. I like, I love touring and I miss it all the time and that's all I ever want to do. But, you know, we were touring more than any other band I know, like people that hear about our tours or knew me at the time were just like, you guys are crazy. We would tour nine months out of the year you know, over 200 shows. And, you know, it was a lot of like, I was always having to support myself with bartending, which I, I cannot do anymore. I really, it just sucks the life out of me. And, um, and so I was like, well, what can I do? That's not that that's creative. And two, so two of my best friends, um, I met in California, like almost 20 years ago, their brothers, we all moved here around the same time here in New York, and they'd both do hair. They've been doing hair for 20 plus years, mm-hmm. and they're amazing at it. And I've seen their careers really take off and in different ways, and uh, it's been really cool. And throughout my years uh, touring, I would just, I would always ask them, you know, hey, how could I assist you? You know, I want to learn. Teach me this because I think it'd be a cool craft to do, to learn. One you can take anywhere, you know, um, mm-hmm. and still be have it be a creative outlet. Um, and it's, you know, you're using your hands a lot. It's detail-oriented. It's everything I'm all about. So I, I got into school. My friends were like, both of them said, well, go to hair school get your cosmetology license and then we'll talk. So I quit the band. We played like a couple shows in South America and then that was it. And then I quit at the start of the year, 2016. And, uh, and it was totally cool. It wasn't like a bad breakup or anything. And they totally understood. And I did a thousand hours of cosmetology school here in New York. Um, to get my license and that's that's how it started and then after once i finished school instead of getting my license right away i joined another band and then (laughs) went on tour for two years (laughs) you know something that you you said a second ago was that you liked hairstyling because it's something that you can do anywhere and what that always reminds me of is Back in 2011, uh, Carrie, my wife and I, and two friends went to Europe, did like the whole after college Europe thing. And yeah, we nice. were we were in Ireland and we were on this bus and uh, it was just like, a, I think we were going to like the Cliffs of Mower and I was talking to the bus driver and he was this super interesting guy and he was talking about how he has two degrees and I was like, wow, like, what are, you, what are you doing this for? And he said that his dad told him and his brother when they were kids that they can pursue whatever they want in college, 
But before they do that, they need to get a degree that you can do anywhere. And his dad was a bus driver. So he's like, you guys should get bus driving (laughs) degrees or, you know, get not degrees, but license license. Yeah. And, uh, and it always stuck with me because I'm like, man, that is so smart. So that's kind of what your, your hairdressing thing reminds me of. Yeah, for sure. You know, at first I was like, I was all about bartending because you can, you can, you know, leave and come back. You don't take your work with you. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And like, everyone's replaceable but it's just it's hard on your body it's hard mentally dealing with people all day like new york is a monster and uh the service industry is nuts but it also shaped who i am and i you know i never regret what i've done so was there a a point where you were bartending and you were like, I can't do this anymore. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, pretty much every night. It's <laughs> like <laughs> there, there is a point where you're like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like, what the fuck am I doing this for? Like, why am I here? What, and what am I doing this for? Why am I doing this? Like it can be so make you feel so degrading, like so some, small and and minuscule and worthless but then you know what if you're working with your buddies at a chill spot you turn around stop what you're doing customers are gonna look at you yell at you wave at you whatever mm-hmm. turn have a shot with your with your colleague and then it's all okay for you know the next hour and uh you just kind of take it a day at a time um yeah, I get it was also like when it when I thought to myself like coming back from tour I'm just like wow, this is this all I can do, you know? Mm-hmm. Like is this my only option? I've I've put so much of my time and energy into music and it's I don't want to say it's not panning out, but it just I'm not able to live off it. So, you know, I want to do something else, but still be creative and, you know, have that outlet and yeah, bartending. I guess it was towards the end of my touring with my last band um, that I got that sort of feeling. What was it like to tour for, for nine months and have nine months of of packed shows and then come back to New York and bartend. (laughs) Crazy, man. I mean, it's amazing too. like to be, you know, be in like Bosnia, dude, Mm -hmm. we played in Sarajevo and like, I remember crossing the border. We, we went the wrong way. Our driver went the wrong way. And we were late to the show and whatever. And we looked up our border crossing and they're like, that's the most dangerous in the country because there's active landmines. Mm. And we're just like, oh, my God. Um, But crazy that, you know, and appreciative that people out there will come to see you play music. It's so cool and so humbling. Um, I I love I cherish every moment on tour and and never regret anything any of it but um it is weird coming back and then 
jumping into a service job where you know your finance bro gets gets to the bar at like 5 30 and you just got there at five and he's itching for his happy hour drink and he or she whatever and you're taking your time you're just getting there whatever maybe i'm tired because i'm jet lagged or whatever and uh he's yelling at you and then he complains and it's just like and i never get into it but in your head you're like man you have no idea where i just was or what i've been through you know um but that's the dude that's the beauty of living in a big city i think i mean living anywhere just dealing with people too it's like you never know who you're going to meet, what they've done, you know, where they've been, what they've gone through. And if, I guess the older I get, the more I realize, actually, I am a people person. I thought I used to think I was a hermit. I was. And then I moved here and it changed my life. I remember interviewing you and I think that was the first issue of Crude, the, the physical magazine. Yeah. And you were telling me that you you believed you were a hermit and then the girlfriend that you had at the time kind of really pushed for you to get out and kind of socialize and go to parties and have fun and meet people yeah yeah and it was um living here does that to you or it spits you out like Mm. you have you have to adapt um but it's great, man. Now, you know, I'll talk to anybody. Just never know. <laughs> yeah, dude, that's awesome. I, I I like how you have grown through that. You know, initially you felt like a hermit, and then now it seems like you've come out on the other side of that being like, you know what, I've I've graduated from hermitdom. Yeah, I mean I like my private time as much as anyone else too, but I also I enjoy being out, meeting people, running into people, man. Like, it sounds crazy, but I run into more people on the street here than anywhere I've lived in my life. It's so crazy. Yeah. Even cars on Huffman in Anchorage? (laughs) Well, maybe not cars on Huffman. (laughs) But the problem with cars on Huffman is you run into people you don't want to (laughs) see. Because they see you waiting for that... uh, uh, that Chinese food, and they're like, "You're gonna eat that?" No, <laughs> uh, kidding. It's actually really good. Um, you know, the older you get, do you appreciate kind of coming back to, I guess, quote unquote, civilization after going on tour and just like being normal, dude? Yeah, I mean, it's always like grass is always greener. Feeling like. Hey, you know, like I'm, I'm in a different country almost every day and this is all great and stuff and I'm living my dream. But then when I'm out doing it, I've been gone for nine weeks. Like all I want is my own space, a house with a yard and the normal things, Mm -hmm. you know, but then I get home and I, I can't live like that because what I'm doing doesn't support me. So um, but yes, to answer your question, yeah, the older I get, um, the older I get, it seems like the, the less I tour too, it's like the tours become shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I'm okay with them being long. It's just um, now with this other career, you know, I have to gauge if it's worth my time to be gone for so long. But, but yeah, I am like now I have I'm back living on my own again. Um, you know, when I saw you um, in Anchorage, it was April, March or April 2018. I. I have a photo. We were at that brewery or somewhere. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. King King Street Brewery? Something that like called? that, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was just about to drive from Anchorage to Brooklyn. And I did with my dad. My dad, or myself and his 115-pound giant schnauzer. And then <laughs> <laughs> in one car. And then uh, my stepmom and, and my dad were in another car following me (laughs) it was insane how did that trip go it was actually pretty awesome um you know the gnarliest drive is anchorage to whitehorse and after that we planned it so the longest drive was the longest drives plural were only were eight hours but you know Eight hours, just me and a dog. <laughs> it it kind of felt like Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance or yeah. something. Like it was, man, it, and and it was just incredible views. And it, they just got shittier and shittier and shittier <laughs> the further <laughs> east we went. Um, but we, dude, on the way to Whitehorse, we're somewhere on the Alcan or getting there and kind of up high altitude-ish and going around these like windy dirt roads and there's snow too and dirt kicking around. This guy passes us on, in a truck just blind around a corner. I don't know how he would have known there wasn't traffic coming the other way, but mm-hmm. what are the odds anyway? But anyway, so then he's like kicking up all this dirt and it fucking lands on my car i had like this audi like a4 fucking little station wagon thing brand new and it just all these rocks and stuff they explode the sunroof there was no like the sunroof is just glass and there's nothing under it you can't like close it Mm -hmm. so it just it kind of my ears kind of popped too like like a like the way that um it sounded like a light bulb breaks, you know, it kind of yeah. implodes. So did that and just shattered glass everywhere, all over oh me, like all, all over my neck, down my shirt and stuff and all over the dog. And we stopped and, you know, cleaned the car and whatever. We were fine. And, um, and then, so that changed our, our route. We were going to go down, take the Cassier highway, go down through Washington and mm-hmm. do like, you know, all the northern parts of the u.s and then head down but we're like okay well the closest dealer like actual audi dealer was in edmonton so we're like fuck it we'll just keep going through canada so for like four days i was just cruising through canada and luckily it it barely rained but it was still cold but with the sunroof open and so i had to have (laughs) i had the heat on blast and a beanie on and a puffy jacket (laughs) 
driving with the music on as loud as it could go, talking to the dog, singing with the dog. Oh know. my gosh. But <laughs> that that drive, the Alcan, is it's a crazy drive. I've done it a few times. Um yeah. the most recent time that I did it, I was driving back up to Alaska from college. I think it was it must have been 2011 again, the same year that okay. we went to Europe. Uh so yeah, 2011 and driving through it with some friends, uh one of my friends Clayton, you know Clayton. Yeah. And uh my brother Colton. And so we're we're driving through and we stop in I think it was called Prince George. Yeah. And it was the weirdest little town because not <laughs> not because of anything that that people were really doing it was because these they were like locusts oh like whoa, uh really? it was insane and i guess it happens like every few years or something like that and we're driving through and these massive bugs are just exploding on all of our windshields because we drove whoa. two cars through so i'm driving a red ford focus and uh somebody else is driving my ford ranger and these these bugs are just exploding everywhere around us, and we're looking up towards these lights, and they're all you know swarming the lights, and we're like, oh my gosh, we need to get gas, so we stop to get gas, and we put on hoodies and we tighten the hoodies around our faces like Kenny from South Park, and yeah. you know run out. We're wearing like goggles so they don't you know, and they're holding holding like bandanas Holy over cow. our face because they're running into your face, and um, you know I I go to pay for gas like prepay. And the uh, the gas station attendant is kind of like standing sideways, so I only see like say his right side, right? Yeah. And I'm I'm like, hey, you know, I need to pay for pump, you know, four and five or whatever, right? <laughs> and the guy's not listening to me, and, uh, and I'm like, I wonder who's talking to. Him. Maybe you know he's talking to somebody on on like a, a a Bluetooth or something, right? Sure. Yeah. So I'm sitting there waiting patiently, and. Eventually, I'm like, oh, hey, uh, we just need to pay for these these two pumps. And then this dude turns around, right? So then I can see his full like profile. And he's got one of these freaking bugs attached to his ear. And it's flapping away right at his, on his left ear. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, like, and this guy is so he's like, you know, eventually like takes my money. And, uh, and I'm wait, I, did he not notice it was on his I ear? No idea. No idea what he <laughs> thought about this bug attached to his ear, dude. It was, it was wild. Whoa. And so I took the opportunity to ask like, where are these bugs come from? And he looks at me and in my mind, I think that he's like lurch, you know, like from Adam's family. And I don't know yeah. if it's completely true or if it's just like my mind has, you know, molded him into this, like kind of morbid character now because he's got this like thing attached to his ear. But when I ask him, where do these bugs come from? What's going on right now? This is like biblical. And he He says, what, but what bugs? (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) No, he said, uh, he said, nobody knows where they come from. Some people think they come from the woods. (laughs) What? That sounds like a M Night Shyamalan movie or something. <laughs> totally. I mean, uh, yeah, it was it was a really wild situation, but it was one of those encounters that uh I feel like everybody has some weird encounter or experience like that on the Alcan. Yeah. Wow. Well, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, we, the, the gnarliest thing for us and it, for me, it was like, yeah, whatever, but it was probably one of the, it was the first peace stop that wasn't like an actual spot. (laughs) There was an outhouse Mm -hmm. and my dad goes in there and I go in one and it was just disgusting, dude. I, I haven't been in one of those since I was a kid camping. Um, but I go in, it's just reeks, you know, and there's like shit everywhere and it's (laughs) fucking disgusting. And my dad goes in and comes right out and he's just like about to hurl. He's like dry heaving. And and I go and I take, do my thing. I pee and I come back out, sanitize my hands. And he's just like still hurting. I'm like, dang, you gone soft. (laughs) (laughs) That was the worst thing. And then, you know, like the car window getting smashed (laughs) exploding maybe it's not these crazy encounters with locals it's just something crazy always happens yeah you know i'm looking at this next question and i think i'm just gonna go ahead and ask it it doesn't really fit with our alaska theme right now but we'll circle back around to alaska sure i'm sure we will (laughs) so we talked a bit before this podcast on Instagram and you said that the pandemic has given you time to be creative and productive in other ways, like releasing an album, all of which you said was made on your iPhone. Yes. Um, yeah. So, so let me just start with, I'm 99% sure I had COVID. Um, this was my last day of work was March 15th at the salon that I was working at. And then we closed the doors the 16th and I left the 18th between the 15th and the 18th. I started feeling like a little itchy throat. And then the the, New York was going into full panic mode. Like all the grocery stores were low on food you know, and like, it was just spreading like wildfire. And I was like, you know what, I'm and I was in a shitty living situation. I was living with these two guys. And I was in a basement. And they were, they're a couple and they, they live up there upstairs. And it's like their place, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm just like, renting a room, but I had this basement level and uh but no door and so one you hear everyone walking around stomping around and two they were having people over and stuff and it was just loud and i was like whoa this is covid time like Mm -hmm. we don't know what's gonna happen you shouldn't we shouldn't be socializing and all this stuff i was feeling real uncomfortable and uh my mom is like sending me all this you know dry food and all kinds of pounds and pounds of pasta and um a bunch of masks and then i'm like fuck it i'll i'll just go to arizona my mom uh mentioned she's like just come here so we can be you can be with family at least Mm -hmm. in case you get sick you know so i was like yeah that sounds a lot better than than being alone out here so i go there and i quarantined by myself at my mom's place she was staying with her partner phil and she she's like i want you to be asymptomatic for 
a week before, uh, or sorry, for two weeks before I see you or something. So I'm there for three weeks, uh, two weeks with no symptoms. But the first week, I, I didn't have a fever high enough uh, to to get tested. So like at the time, they wouldn't test you if it wasn't over 100 degrees. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then my symptoms were mild. Like I had... The worst thing was losing smell and taste for a week and then also headaches. Um, but the smell and taste thing, like I lost it for a week and then it came back for one day and then it gradually, it, it, it left again and gradually came back over the course of like five days. Um, well, in this time, I had a birthday. <laughs> uh, my mom was really sweet and it was like, bringing me groceries all the time and leaving them at the door. And on my birthday, she left like a little, you know, birthday package with balloons. And she was across the street in her car with the windows down, waving at me and like filming it. Yeah. That's awesome. Super sweet. Yeah. I love her. And um, so, dude, I was like, it was crazy. I was by myself in this house. And getting over the sickness, which was also a mind fuck because we didn't know what was up with it, you yeah. know, like at all. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like the movie Contagion. I'm, I got 24 hours. Or, yeah, yeah. You know, like that's what it felt like. And, and then, you know what I did? I was like, anytime I get sick, I'm just, I try to pull through by like, just being physic physically active and sweating and working really like making my body work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went skateboarding, dude. In in like ninety degree weather, I was skateboarding and trying to sweat it out, and uh, which was kind of fun. It was a cool thing to like pick back up, you know. Do you feel like that worked at all? Um, I think. I mean. Yeah, just being active, breaking a sweat every day. I think that helped mm-hmm. like kick your immune system up. And man, the first one of the first nights, I just took a boatload of vitamin C and I had the worst diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like looking it up while I'm taking a shit. I'm looking up symptoms i'm like is diarrhea a symptom of covid they're like yes it is i'm like no but you gave it to yourself i gave it to myself dude. And it, it was totally too much vitamin c um it just went right through me uh but so in this in this three-week time period where i'm by myself i'm you know puzzling a lot uh skype and house party drinking a lot with my buddies <laughs> Which, by the way, is a lot more fun than people would think or than we would have yeah. thought prior to this. I know. And I wouldn't have done it prior to this. At Not all. at all. Yeah. yeah. But I, I have actually been really enjoying it. Yeah. We would set up, you know, dates and be like, all right, guys, everyone, let's let's log on at this time and whatever. And, yeah. And sometimes I like to leave the, the room unlocked because then random people will drop in. <laughs> That like some people don't know, you know. So it's kind of like chat roulette. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> kind of. But someone knows somebody. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> my mom was the one who would crash my 
uh, chats the most, actually. That's awesome. Even though she was like, you know, like 10 miles away in the same town. Um, no, so, so during this time, I was really itching to play some music of some sort. I didn't have anything there. And, you know, I, I dug up, I did have some stuff there because, um, as I mentioned in our texting, uh, that, you know, this year, since I saw you last, I, uh, my wife and I split. And so a lot of my stuff was at my mom's house for storage. Mm -hmm. So I had all this, like some music stuff, these like drum pads I could practice on and some cymbals and random things and, uh, little drum machines here and there. So I was doing all that, and then I was like, "No, I need, I need more. I can't. I, I don't know. I need, I need to write songs. Mm-hmm. I need, I need an instrument with notes on it." <laughs> yeah. And so, because even leading up to all this, I had gone through a lot in the last couple of years, and uh, I just thought now was a good time to get those feelings out into music. So, into like a tangible form and uh so i spent probably i don't know two or three hundred bucks on apps and stuff like synthesizer apps mixer apps oscillators and weird stuff all on your phone all on my phone because that's all i had to to work with i didn't have my laptop with me i had nothing so i called the record songs in the key of quarantine mm-hmm. um i'd say 50 percent of it was written there in arizona and the other half was written here um, in brooklyn and it was all done on my phone uh written and recorded there's two songs i think that have a drum machine and i literally like use the internal mic on the iphone to record the beat uh, from this little drum machine from the little tiny crappy speaker that it has. And oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And then with GarageBand, I was able to mix it all. Mm-hmm. And it with headphones on, it sounds sick. <laughs> it's like sounds like real high quality stuff. In that app, you can automate, you can like cut and paste and loop and do whatever you want. It's been really interesting seeing people persevere through this but not even just persevere but like excel you know like kind of go over and above with very little uh, amount of technology yeah i mean there's something to be said about just working with what's around you Mm -hmm. you know um oliver ackerman uh right before i joined a place very strangers they had released a video um to one of my favorite songs of theirs called so far away and um it was with that hipstamatic app so Mm -hmm. um ollie had taken a bunch of photos with that app on his phone and they were just like cycling through on his laptop as they were uploading and that song was playing too and he was like whoa this looks kind of sick and that's the whole that's the video (laughs) it's like cycling through a bunch of tour photos to the music oh that's great so it just accidentally happened yeah and then hipstamatic contacted them or something and featured them for something or some i don't know i'm not sure exactly but 
really neat. And he was just like, yeah, you know, it's all, it was more about kind of just, it was kind of an accident and also like using what we had around us to, to make it happen. That's a powerful device, thousand dollar little hand computer. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on with this album? So, I mean, I had no intention of doing too much, like playing it live or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, This was just, I kind of just wanted it to be a digital release. And I found out about this label called Mystery Circles based out of L.A. This guy, David, runs a really small operation, but really cool um, aesthetic he has with the the artists that he... um, releases music for it's a lot of it's synth based modular synth is like a popular thing with his label Mm -hmm. and um i'm probably the only one on there that doesn't really know what he's doing (laughs) (laughs) so like they all have like really good gear and could talk about you know stuff that's way beyond me and i'm just like you know what i I just got a phone and made some stuff I thought sounded cool. (laughs) Um, And, but he's cool. I found, I found him through a good buddy of mine, Alex Roldan, who uh, my current band, we took him out on tour once. This will destroy you. Alex is, he plays modular synth and also plays drums and live. He plays drums on top of it. Um, But I met, met Alex. This is even crazier. I met him in like 2005 on MySpace. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Kid, kid you not, through my two drummer project, Raw Beats, and he hit us up and he was like, man, this is cool. And then him and I started collaborating on the side, like when I start, when I first started Robot. Mm-hmm. And his project at the time was called I Am Analog. And we've been friends ever since. And then like, uh he hit me up on instagram and he was like dude you playing this will destroy you i just noticed that and i live in dc can i come to your show i was like fuck yeah dude and then we met in the flesh a few years ago and it was awesome so cool but he's who was on this label mystery circles and so i contacted that guy and he was like man yeah dude i because at that point I had my music on Bandcamp mm-hmm. and I was like, you know, check out, I was asking him like, um, how do I get on the label? Like, how do I just want to release this digitally? Like what's, what's the vibe? And he was into it and he said, he's like, you and I split everything 50, 50. It's basically a handshake deal. And he does, um, he prints, cassette tapes and then the rest is all digital we but we literally only pressed like i think it was 50 tapes or something um and then so also my bandmate uh well now technically former and that's a whole nother story but um my friend christopher royal king he is on that label too with his solo project called symbol Mm. which he's had for years it's really cool um he he also knows what he's doing i don't his stuff is beyond me it's really amazing 
so let's talk about the bands you've been in. We we've kind of been alluding to them for a little bit now. The one that you were recently a part of, This Will Destroy You, and then the one before that was A Place to Bury Strangers. Yeah, so A Place to Bury Strangers, if we talked in 2011, or no, 2000, when did when was that first crude? 2013, yeah. Okay, so I joined Strangers in 2012, and... I spent a year living out of my suitcase, not paying rent because <laughs> we toured so much. Mm-hmm. Um, that band I've seen most of the world with. It's been amazing. And I learned so much about the other cultures. I learned about myself. You know, there were times like we all, it happens to everyone. You break, you, you crack on tour. <laughs> mm-hmm it gets to you being away for so long and you know you it it comes out of you you know this like frustration and things come out of you because you're holding in feelings because maybe you're not used to being open and and that close to someone for that long and you're not and you're like just getting to know these people it's it's a lot Mm -hmm. um and I've seen it with other people too, but uh, eventually then you learn how to then become or live in a way that, you know, if something's bothering you, you talk about it. And everyone is, once everyone is on that page, it is the best thing. I love it. I love being on the road with those people so much. Um, so that's that band. <laughs> uh and then this will destroy you. I met them through Place to Bury Strangers. I think back in 2012, we did a tour together for a few weeks around the country. And then we just became buddies. So, you know, when we were in Austin, they would come to our shows. If they were in New York, we'd go to theirs. And Chris and uh, Jeremy and I became good friends. And then... Um, I joined that band right after hair school. So in 2016. And like I said, we toured for like two years straight. And then when I came back, I got my license and all that. And that's a whole nother story. (laughs) So are you still with This Will Destroy You? Yes, currently. Yes, I am. Um, We, yeah. We've been silent. So we had, you know, we had our whole year booked for um, touring this year, 2020. Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened. And then all of a sudden, I mean, we were supposed to be in China. We had like, I don't know how many, five or six shows in China. We had Singapore, I think, Hong Kong, maybe Malaysia and Taiwan or something like that. That's usually the routing. And in Japan, but we, we didn't have Japan, I don't think. Um, and it all started getting pushed back. It was like, okay, September, then October, then, then December. And then now it's just not happening. Um, and some festivals were just saying, okay, the same time next year. Mm-hmm. And now, now I've seen the lineups. We're not even a part of it. So 
you know, we've had some, uh, the band dynamic hasn't been the greatest. Um, and, you know, to respect some other people, I, I'm not going to get too into it. But, um, yeah, we're just kind of on this indefinite sort of hiatus trying to figure out what's going to happen, you know, like live music is changing, you know? Yeah. So I don't know when we're going to be able to tour again. It's, it seems like it is something that is kind of plaguing everybody that makes money off of live music. You know, people are having to find other modes of, of making money when really all they've ever done is or has been in the creative field. It reminds me a lot of snowboarding, you know, growing up snowboarding and Mm -hmm. you're snowboarding, you're snowboarding and that's all you've ever done. And then say you blow your knee out and you're 30 and you're like, Oh shit. Like, what do I do now? Like, I don't really have any skills, you know? Exactly the same. Uh, and, and think of too, the, the, the other, like the production side of it too, those people. So I have friends in that field too, like audio engineers and tour managers. It's just now they, they can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, I know now there's like, they're doing like drive-in theater style shows here and there, but it's nothing like bands like the ones I've been a part of can't survive off of that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's crazy. So you said that you learned a lot with a place to bury strangers during or while on tour. Do you have any specific examples? Um, let's see. I mean, what comes to mind is that like, one time before a tour this is after like a year in the band we we're about to we're packing up a couple days before leaving for like we're gonna be gone i think for eight weeks in europe and eastern europe and then come back or it was nine weeks come back have a week off and then do another like seven week u.s tour Mm -hmm. and you know, so then the guys sat me aside and they're just like, hey, man, like, we want to let you know, you know, you should always feel comfortable around us. We love you. You know, you're you're one of us now. You can trust us with anything. We feel like, you know, sometimes you take things out, feelings out on stage and we feel like you know, maybe we are a cause of some of these things that you're feeling, but we don't know because you don't tell us. So, you know, maybe something super stupid like like someone left a sock on my bed or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, that's not the case, but say that was, you know, and then it festers and builds up into, I don't know what, and then we're like setting up on stage, but uh, because in in a rush because we were late and didn't get a sound check and now uh, that's pissing me off and we're just like always like rush 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 and then you know and I like uh, I'm a little spoiled now too like <laughs> I like to get there 
have my sound check. Well, take our time sound checking and then have like two hours before the set, one to eat and then the other hour just to mentally prepare and and physically I warm up backstage. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of get in the right space and um, to where once I set foot on stage, it's just becomes this experience and it's, I leave everything else behind. Um, but them telling me that, pulling me aside and telling me that really uh, made a huge impression on me. And, you know, I was like, wow, even for them to be able to say that took a lot. And that stuck, man, with all my relationships, you know, friendships or, or whatever. Um, just communication is huge. Um, but I, I'm back to like the feeling of uh, letting things go once I'm on stage and just being in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the feeling I've said this before um, is that when I'm snowboarding, you know, nothing else matters except what's around you and, and your, your buddies. But when my wife left me, that was in the middle of a tour and that was hard to, to shut those feelings off. I couldn't like, it was, it hurt, man. It was like, Someone, you know, you choose to spend all your life with and put all your time and energy into Mm -hmm. who also just makes you feel better just by having them around. Um, And you feel like a better version of yourself all of a sudden doesn't want that anymore. It's just crushing. And and the fact that um, at first I was really uh, just sort of pissed that it happened how it happened mm-hmm. but then as time went on i realized i actually wouldn't have wanted it any other way because it really literally was blood sweat and tears every night from then on on stage and i think it was some of our best performances or at least for me i don't know i i really felt it and i really felt supported by them they were man they were like Dude, if you need to, if you need to leave, we'll cancel, uh, the you know the next show, and we'll meet you somewhere else. We'll get you plane tickets. It's all good, or we'll cancel the tour. Like mm-hmm. they were so supportive, um, but I kept pushing on, and you know, talked to my friends and family, and got through it. Do you feel like that was possibly like a pivotal moment in your life where? you were maybe given two options where one was you being this performer, this, this musician that you've always wanted to be that this thing that you've always pursued. And then maybe something a little bit more domestic and kind of traditional and not saying that you made that decision, but the decision was made for you. And as you're saying now, you you're happy because of it at least the way that it turned out. Yeah. I mean, and also I think at the time, you know, with, uh, I'm not going to say her name to respect her um, and what we had, but, you know, I think after a year, we were married a year. So Mm -hmm. after that, I think 
maybe she started wanting something else or realizing that I wasn't changing, you know, I was me at the time was this like just barely getting by, but, but doing what I love. It was the first time when I joined this will destroy you is the first time I could ever be in a band and play music and not have to work another job. Mm. So I was embracing that and a little too much because, you know, we had, my ex and I had plans to move to LA and save money and, you know, like start a family and all that stuff. And she was hustling, saving all this money and stuff. And I wasn't, I was touring. And when I wasn't touring, I was watching the Sopranos and practicing on my practice pad and doing mm. pushups. <laughs> <laughs> you were in the zone. Yeah. So I was doing this uh, 100 push-ups a day for 100 days challenge thing, and then I it just stuck, and I kept doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, so I think now I'm diff- I'm I've kind of changed in a way. I've just realized, you know, I can't do that. Um, for too long i'm pushing 40 and you know i can't come home from tour with nothing you know and and just barely get by you know i want i like nice things i work i like to work hard I, you know I, um i want a nice place and i want to be able to go on a trip if i wanted to you know and all my best friends that have gotten married, I haven't been able to go to one bachelor party because I've always been broke. Um, so that that's kind of what sparked the other career. So so like this, um, I met her in, towards the end of hair school in 2016. I joined the band, left for two years, you know, touring. And then when I came back, so towards the end of those two years, my wife leaves me. And then I was like, okay, that's kind of my kick in the ass to get this other career going. So I came back um, to New York, got my license, and then I flew to LA. And because I had been there already after tour, because we were supposed to live there, and that's another story, another tangent. We don't even need to cross, but um, <laughs> and so I'm here. I get my license, and then I go back. I go to California. Well, in California, you need more hours of education to get a, a cosmetology license. So I go to school again. The best school. It's like where this kind of haircutting that I do. It's like precision haircutting um it's where it all came from sassoon vidal sassoon academy Mm -hmm. vidal sassoon was a uh english man um who changed the game in hair he he was like at the time it was all just like you know styling with curls and crazy blow dryers and things like that and updos and wedding hair he was able to bring shape and balance and basically brought like architecture into hair Mm -hmm. 
and he created like all these lines and shapes and really cool haircuts and it was all about the cut um not so much the styling and to where it would like naturally fall into this cool shape and he uh, where was i going with that <laughs> uh oh he would do things like he implemented this these kind of cutting techniques of using your head shape and or face shape to to add things or or eliminate things so say your head shapes really round well you cut in a square shape to slim the the head shape you know mm -hmm. to make it more oval feeling because to the eye that's like what that's like you know like when you're drawing uh figures you know like the, the head is an oval um yeah, I found I, I found that super fascinating. So that's where I went to school and did another 800 hours. What kind of head shape would I need to have a mullet? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it wouldn't matter really because that's a, um, you know, it's business in the front, party in the back. <laughs> I mean, front and back, you could put that on any head. <laughs> well, I think now that I'm losing my hair, it would just be a skullet. Yeah, yeah, it would. <laughs> yeah. Something that kind of occurred to me was that being a hairdresser and getting your hair done is such an intimate experience. Definitely. And to consider something like that is happening during a pandemic where people are wearing masks and being very conscious of social distancing, like... I mean, how, how does that play out right now? Um, well, at first it was really weird. Um, and there was all these rules and, and then, but they were always changing. So I was like, I, I chose not to go back to the salon I was at. And I have a former colleague who was like, hey, I'm not going back either, but I'm thinking of opening my own spot. Mm. So so maybe like what would you think about that and so her and i chatted for a bit and here and there as she was like getting her ideas together and then she made it happen and later like a few months into it um after the salons had reopened so that like you know the um cdc and stuff and and the the state could figure out safe ways to do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, now I just, I rent a chair at the spot, but, um, you know, part, like you said, it is very intimate. And I think that's 90% how I got COVID because at the time I was assisting four days a week and then taking clients one day a week and assisting I'm, shampooing massaging their heads and then with with bare hands and then i'm like sometimes i'm blow drying their hair and i'm just touching them a lot and grabbing their their towels and their you know capes and robes and um but now so what we do is we have to wear a mask and also have eye protection either a either glasses like clear safety glasses or like a uh what do you call that like a shield yeah and 
all my people have been pretty cool. No one's been really weird because, you know, I was taking clients doing house calls when I first got back from Arizona and having people come to me or I would go to them and I would, I would wear all the gear, you know, and, uh, and just cut on dry hair. And I don't know. So a lot of my people were like, just comfortable with that one-on-one because they knew me, but what they didn't want was to be in a place where strangers would come and go, you know, Yeah. in in the salon. So, um, but it's really affected everything because we can't, uh, I don't, I forget the capacity that we're allowed. I think it it might be 50, I want to say percent, but we only we make sure there's only three people working at a time okay so and we don't have assistance so um because i think we're still in a phase where the stylist is supposed to be with the client the whole time but that's how we we work how we're running it anyway so i don't know i i actually kind of enjoy it more because it's not so hectic you know and there's there's time in between the clients i'm not like scrambling to get set up for the next person you know Mm -hmm. we make sure there's time to clean our implements and and the surroundings and the chairs and everything before and after each client um and we take their temperatures we're really careful it seems like almost and this might be an inaccurate depiction of this because I was not alive during this time, but like old school barber shops, you know, in my mind, it was like you showed up, you had the same barber. You always do. You got a shave, you got your haircut, you kind of bullshitted with them for a while. And it was really laid back. Yeah. I and mean, it's kind of more like that now <laughs> in a way, because it's not so crazy. And we're also, we don't do walk-ins. Um, we're still at a point where it has to be appointment only. So, which that also makes it hard because for someone like me, I don't have very many clients. I went through 80% of my client list the first month we were open last month. And then what, you know, like for the next three months, I need other clients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I'm having a hard time uh, with that, but I, I've done some things to change my course a little bit. Yeah, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about this. I forget who. Maybe it was a Lyft driver or something, but actually I think it was a Lyft <laughs> driver. Um, the This idea of the gig economy, right? And I think that there are some of us uh, yourself and myself included, where we just kind of maybe had kind of this idealized version of what we wanted to pursue. And then once the reality, like once we hit the reality of what that was, you know, for you being a musician, for me being a journalist, once we saw the reality of that, we're like, oh, wow, like we're going to need another job, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. so I think that. Uh-huh as this gig economy has like evolved, I feel like I'm like really prepared for it. 
That's good, man. I I mean, I, I feel the same. But you talk to other people and they're scared, you know, and worried because they think that, like, one of my good friends, he, he works in production and he's like, you know, we're down to, I don't know, 10% of the staff and I don't know, man, after all this, I don't know if, you know, like, they're going to sell the company and I'm going to be gone and, you know, the, I'm like, but take this time also to, to network or, or kind of change your path. Shit's just going to change. Mm-hmm. Like the course that you were on is over. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it has to be different now. It's like a whole reset on everything, mm-hmm. every industry, you know. Some people have been able to stay afloat, though, like my buddy with the pedal shop. Uh, pedal company he's still you know people are just at home spending those stimulus checks <laughs> uh, keeping him in business which is awesome and then you know you have your billionaires with like your bezos and all that mm-hmm. which i hate to support it but i kind of have to sometimes i think we all do i mean especially if we are kind of made to stay at home or there's a curfew or you know we're a little hesitant about being out in public yeah or you physically cannot go into a store or something yeah yeah exactly you know so i wrote this this down and i have another line of questioning great um but i wanted to bring this up because i felt like i accidentally cut you off earlier and that was you were talking about alternatives to live music during this pandemic. And one thing that came to mind was I listened to this podcast about, and I think it was Dropkick Murphys and how they are doing these virtual shows and they are able to recoup a lot of their funds. And I think that that kind of spoke to, what you were saying earlier is, you know, there are large groups like Dropkick Murphy or, you know, like Lady Gaga or something. They're able to to have these events, whereas like smaller groups, yeah, uh, they don't necessarily have that type of audience. Their audience lies in like the live show. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like. Uh... I was telling my bandmates at the start of this, I was bugging them like, yo, we could get in a studio and record a bunch of things and, you know, or do a live thing or just release content together. We can quarantine at a studio. I mean, we can be socially distant, I mean, and still perform. Um, But nobody was having it. and, And then I saw the Post Malone thing and that was sick. Mm-hmm. Did you did you see that? I didn't know. I you know I'm not a fan of the guy, but um, now I kind of am because <laughs> he he just played. It was him, some other dude, and Travis Barker on drums, and they were playing or two other guys. Um, they were playing all Nirvana covers. Oh, okay. And Post, yeah, Post was like singing and playing guitar and crushing it. It was so good. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that it's that type of creativeness that is going to carry certain artists and bands through this. 
Yeah, but but also that's post Malone. That ain't for sure. Yeah, <laughs> my band. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, have you guys thought about you know things that you could do that are more virtual or even just social distant? I mean, I have. No one seems to be backing it. But now my band, uh, without getting too into it, is sort of in a place where I'm not sure what the future holds uh, with performing uh, at all. (laughs) Mm. But I would love to do any kind of streaming or something, but I don't know. I think uh, that uh, I don't. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> no, no, I totally understand, and I think that uh, this kind of transcends to everything right now. Right? It's not just live music. It's not just journalism. It's not just you know being a hairdresser. It's it's. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are hesitant and or afraid to try something new when the old way has been working out for so long. Yeah, and I I agree 100% and I think that the old way watch it's it's not going to work the same. I feel like once it comes back and everything's fine and dandy, which is going to take like another year I think to fully be back to what it was, I it's just not going to be the same. I think there'll be still be less people together and you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to be some remnants of the pandemic for a very long time. If not, if not indefinitely, you know, um totally. Look at education right now. They have this thing called a blended model. And what that means is that there are uh they're blending in-person and virtual educational experiences. And I've talked to a number of teachers that are like excited about the continuation of blended learning beyond the pandemic. Hmm. So wait, that's like virtual learning, like zoom chats and stuff, zoom classes, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing that in, in the hair world too. Cause, um, I don't know if I've said it, but I, my goal with it, with the hair industry is to be an educator. Mm. Um, I'm renting and taking clients right now, but my heart is in education. I love teaching people things, especially like a craft that I I'm learning every time I do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to like be a part of a collection and create these things for people to learn, you know, and travel teaching. Yeah, that's great. But they have they're now they're starting to do that uh like the academies are all doing it online and there's even like one-on-one classes you can pay for and take these advanced courses um there's other artists that are out like traveling and doing it on the stage at like drive-in style things um venues or whatever um but most of it is like you said like the virtual stuff if it works it's cool. It's, it's not the same as being right there, you know, and mm-hmm. physically, if it's something as physical as like haircutting, it's a little trickier, but you get the gist of it. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So 
moving on to Instagram questions. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, as you know, I asked the crude Instagram if they had any questions for you, and what do you got? And yeah, yeah. Any, anyone? Any? No, yeah, no. The, and there's nobody. Okay. <laughs> uh, good. <laughs> Great. No, <laughs> that was and easy. your longtime buddy Kirk Seinbaugh sent over a few. Oh, okay. <laughs> so his first one is. What are the top three people who have influenced you the most in your life, either from snowboarding, music, business, or life itself? Oh, man. I mean, there's there's people in each of those categories for me. So I guess I'll just pick some. Well, I mean, my, my parents, first of all, both of them. I'm going to count them as one. <laughs> okay. Uh, because my parents taught me how to just to work hard and, and how to, and basic morals, you know, how to treat people and treat people like you'd like to be treated. And respect was huge in my house growing up. And my dad said something that I quote every year on his birthday, November 2nd, he said to me when he was teaching me how to drive when I was 14, when I was getting my permit, mm -hmm. he's like, I'm adjusting the rear view mirror about to, about to like reverse or something. Or, and he's like, he's like, Oh no, we were stopped at a light and I was adjusting the rear view mirror. He's like, what are you doing that for? And he turns it so I can't see it. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> he goes, I go, I'm trying to adjust it. He goes, what do you need that for? Don't worry about what's behind you. Worry about what's in front of you. Mm -hmm. And that kind of, I, I had this epiphany like, I don't know, 10 years ago of what that really meant. And, and it's true, man. That's some wise words from my pops. You know, just worry about what's in front of you. Live in the moment. I guess you could say your future too, but uh, the past is the past. You can't change that. Um, okay, so then two, because that counts as one. Oh, man, snowboarding or music. Uh, dude, it's so hard to pick one person. <laughs> you know, one way to think about this, because I always... Um... When I'm asked something like this, I'm always like, uh, I can't kind of whittle down this, like, I don't know, this pool of really influential, you know, mentors, friends, all of that into yeah. like a top five, three, ten list. Mm -hmm. um, so I always like to say, like, what are the first ones that come to mind? Okay. Uh, I would say Jesse Bertner. I met Jesse when I was 12. He was 16. It was the second year of borderline camp. My parents knew your parents and they just, my mom dropped me off. She's like, yeah, you know, that, that shop borderline that you try to shop at and, and all the clothes are too big for you. Um, <laughs> Cause I was a little Grom at the time. Uh -huh. And she's like, they have this camp. Why don't you go do this? You like to snowboard, blah, blah. And I was like, no, mom, I like this, like 
nerdy, antisocial skater, snowboarder kid. Shy. I wasn't antisocial. I was just shy. She left me there, dude, at, at Diamond Center Borderline. <laughs> and Jesse, she's like, just go ask for Jesse, is what Scott said. I was like, okay. I go in there and he's like, what's up, little dude? And he's got like long blonde hair. And he's like, I'll be right back, but you're safe at the shop. Pete's over there behind the register, Pete Iverson. And then, yeah. uh, and you're good. He's He goes, this I'll remember forever. He goes, Pete's my favorite snowboarder. And it's true, I think. It's still. <laughs> um, and so Pete's like, hey, little guy. And then he got busy. And Scott Stamnis, do you remember him? Yeah. So Scott was there. And I was like, he could tell I was just like scared or something. I was like looking at the boards. And he's like, hey, man, what's up? I'm Scott. And he was just super nice. He's like, yeah, I heard that, uh, you know, you're one of Scott's friends or something. That's cool, man. You're here for camp right on. I was a camper, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, and from that moment on, like, Scott was like, I mean, he was the sweetest guy. Uh, but I, I from that moment on, I felt safe there at borderline it was mm. amazing that's awesome but Bertner, so i kind of was always like under his wing you know growing up like mm-hmm. big alaska boards and then sims and then when he went to lib he was just like flowing me gear you know um and Bertner, he just taught me how to never give up anything that you do uh that dude on the hill and off the hill works so hard mm-hmm. and he crushes it but he's like dude he will lap me on a jump like a hundred <laughs> times <laughs> and i like and at first it always sounds fun too and then i'm with him and i'm just like oh my god this guy's so good <laughs> yeah but that's what it takes to be great at anything is like surround yourself with people that are better than you Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that kind of like, I don't know, it makes you feel good when you're not around them. You're like, Oh, I learned something from this person. Um, uh, yeah, he just taught me to like charge it to the game, dude. <laughs> and like, like, don't worry about if you fuck up or whatever, how many times it takes you to learn a trick, just do it and have fun. Like this is supposed to be fun. Yeah. No one's judging you. Don't get in your head. You know, and don't worry about what's behind you, right? Exactly. So, uh, unless he's behind you and you're at Mount Baker, <laughs> he's like gonna run into you because he's so fucking fast. Um, yeah, that dude rips. Uh, as in in life in all aspects. Yeah. I mean, dude, there's so many people that have taught me so many things all my best friends have different things oh dude this is hard <laughs> um I'll, last one i'm gonna you know what i'm gonna get a little bit sappy and go with with the friendship thing <laughs> i would say kirk man he you know, we're the same age. We're like, let's see, he's March 7th. So we're 20, 
four days apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just, man, he, here's a guy who's like super artistic and super creative, works a nine to five, owns a house and has a kid and an amazing wife and, mm-hmm. um, has owned multiple cars and traveled around the world and works a real big boy job. <laughs> you know, I've never had that. And, and like he, what, what I've learned about our friendship is that no matter the difference of our lives, like the, the courses that we've taken and, and where we are and where we've been and where we were, he's the same dude mm-hmm. with me, you know? And that, that's, that's what friendship is about. Um, I don't know if I said it the last time I talked to you about the, or the first crude mag, but I had this epiphany, this pivotal moment. I was taking a shit (laughs) where I get most of my ideas, right? So I was, um, I was dating a girl for eight years and not married. It's crazy. But, you know, we spent most of our twenties together and sort of grew apart. Now we're cool, but. Yeah, she's the one I moved to New York for and like told me to like, you know, be social and do these things. Mm-hmm. Well, we were living in San Diego together and I'm like in the bathroom, like, uh, I was like, Hey, um, could I, could you, could you hand me like a pen and a piece of paper? She's like, why? Just wait till you get out. <laughs> I was like, no, I need to write this down right now. <laughs> and so she like slides it under the door <laughs> and I write these 12. Wait, let me count. Do you still have it? It's 11 words. Yeah, I had to count. Um, yeah. So, Oh no, I don't know if I still have that notebook. You know, I probably do in my storage in Seattle, which I've had for eight years, almost nine years. <laughs> so how'd you count it? You just counted it in your head? The words? Yeah. Just now. Yeah. With my, uh, and my hands, okay, my fingers. So eleven words, uh, and I wrote, "Love is life. Life is love. Without love, there is nothing." And what I meant, and what I still mean, is, without love, there's no reason for anything that you do, whether it be a friendship, an intimate relationship, uh, the things that you're passionate about where you live, how you live. If there wasn't something I didn't love about you, Code Man, we wouldn't be here right now, you know? Yeah. You know, and I I think about that all the time. Um and I've I've really tried to live like that. Um just straight love. Like don't do it. And this is partly why I live this kind of, I've gone this unconventional route to get to where I am, Mm -hmm. pursuing my passions all the time and suffering here and there a little bit in in ways. But to me, there's no other way I'd want to do it. And and I wouldn't want to do something that I didn't love. But that being said, Kirk and my friendship has always had that. And it's been fucking great. And I wanted to tell you this, that 
he says in parentheses in the question, myself not included, but oh, fuck. <laughs> I wanted, no, I wanted, I wanted you to know that I purposely left that out because I wanted to see if you'd bring them up. And if you brought them up, I wanted to hear what you had to say. Yeah. I mean, I brought him up because you said, you know, what are the first three names that come to mind? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it would be that when I think of snowboarding, I think I mean snowboarding is huge in my life, and it and I still want it to be. Um, I think of Bertner when I think of friendships and what friendships even mean to me. I think of Kirk, mm-hmm. and then the first thing you know, just my parents. They've they've always supported me. That's great, isn't it? To have to have parents oh, that that support you, even though you're pursuing something that is, like you said, unconventional. Dude, I was going to school at uh, Colorado State in Fort Collins, and I was enrolled there for like less than a month. My parents came down, or no, I. I don't even think school had started yet because they came for orientation. Yeah. But they drove from Alaska with my sister and her best friend when my parents were still married to Fort Collins and to see me. And when they got there, I told my mom, I said, I hate it here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Cause I moved there from Bellingham to to be in a band with my friend Luke, uh, love, uh, you know, uh, it's Luke Whitehead. <laughs> oh, you know yeah, okay. Brothers. Yeah. 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 So Peter was Luke, one of my best men. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I love Luke and I, and I, and I see him all the time on tour. If, if he's in, if he's in town, when I'm coming through, he comes to a show and, um, he's amazing. But he, you know, he's like, Oh yeah, I've been playing bass. Let's be in a band. I was like, fuck yeah, we can be in a band. And we can snowboard. That'll be sick. Well, I go and I'm like taking it a little more serious than everyone, like the music wise. Uh, and we never really got around to doing anything. And so I started looking up this school in Hollywood mm-hmm. and I tried out. I, well, I had to make an audition tape or whatever. And I went to this local music store and they let me do it. I don't ever want to hear it back. It was so bad. Um, (laughs) But part of the reason I got in, I think, was because I had to drop out of Colorado State before I found out I was accepted at the music school. Mm. And that dedication, I think, willing to just drop everything, they were like, okay, this kid, and like move across the country, this kid like really wants it. We're going to let him. Mm -hmm. So... But my mom, my parents get there and I'm, I'm with my mom. I'm like, I hate it here. I want to go to this music school right here. Check it out. I show her in this drum magazine. <laughs> and I was 19. And, and my mom's like, you got to tell your father. She's like, I don't think you should do it. This is crazy. What are you going to do about like school? And like, what happens if you don't get in and blah, blah. I'm like, I'll get in. Don't worry about it. Just let me do it. And if I don't get accepted... I can take the semester off and snowboard. <laughs> She's like, no, you, well, you talk to your father. So the next day she's like, uh, my dad comes up to me. My dad and I are like having a coffee 
And my dad goes, so your mother told me. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> she told you I was supposed to tell you. And he, he goes, you know what? I fully support you 100%. You have to just promise me one thing. Promise me that you give it everything you got and you really, really want this. Um, because if that's what you want, I support you. Mm -hmm. And I was so shocked that my dad would say that because he's always been like, go to college, get your degree, then go play and do whatever you want. And I was like, fuck that. I'm going to be a snowboarder and mm -hmm. like not go to college or fuck that. I'm going to do the music thing, you know, and he just wanted me to really just go all in. Um, and I did, and it was great. That's awesome. So, um, Kirk also asks, what do you think is the best snowboard movie ever made? Okay. Well, I stopped really getting all the videos every year, like in like 2002 or something, you know, but, uh, for me, so really it's just like what it meant to me, mm -hmm. um, would be, it's toss up, man. Uh, I would say between Meltdown and Subject Hawkinson. Mm -hmm. Meltdown, because for me, it was like one of the first movies I ever got. And then I went backwards and I like got older movies just to check them out. Like Hard Hungry and the Home. And the, is it Hard Hungry and the Homeless? I think so. The the really old school one, right? Yeah. And then like T, the old TV movies, I went back and saw those and. But Meltdown just was like, that was the music I was listening to at the time, and it was current, and I was I was like, at a level where I was striving to be those people, mm -hmm. and and I felt like I was a part of it right then, um, and then subject Hawkinson because it was like, wow, I I knew this guy was sick, mm -hmm. but it was cool to see his life, you know, see how how he lives. Um, super inspiring. Both of those, you know. Yeah, those are both great movies. Oh, but actually, but wait, those are amazing, very influential movies. But I'm gonna have to say this: the greatest movie of all time is called "It's Called Whoa." Not many people have seen it. <laughs> um, Kirk and I star in it. It's on VHS. And Michael Gower and, and uh, Marcus Adolph make a little cameo. They have a friend section that they split to an Eminem song. Mm -hmm. And Whoa is, I think it's, I forget if it starts with me or starts with Kirk. And then it ends with me or Kirk. But when the first section ends and then the last section starts, it picks up at the song where it left off before the same song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's that Black Rob song called Woe. I knew it. I was going to ask you, is that Black Rob song on there? <laughs> yeah. So for years, we've been wanting to do Woe 2 and call it W2 Taxation. <laughs> and Bertner's always been backing it. And we it's been this inside thing we've been talking about for years and years. And here, I, I kind of wanted to, I don't know if we're ending soon or not, but I wanted to mention how what snowboarding means to me and 
how it's been a part of my life for this long mm-hmm. and um and like how i feel like i mean literally it's it's my first memory is like skiing when i was two and um but what snowboarding is for me is this outlet where nothing matters except for what's around you and it's very humbling it's very much like Nicholas Mueller said in one of those movies, he's like, there's no friction. It feels like flying and it's very euphoric and it's beautiful. It doesn't matter how I'm feeling. Once I do that, no matter the conditions, it's, I'm always a hundred times feeling better. Um, But, and I don't know what it is. But I have, there's something there still for me, I feel. Like, no, I don't, I'm not like Mark McMorris and can do like quad million whatever corks. But um, I just feel like snowboarding still has a place for me in my life. uh, Or there's a place for it in my life, whether it be keep collaborating with Bertner, sending him music. He uses a lot of my music, mm-hmm. um, whether it's like a LibTech ad or his own thing or Sean Genovese too. Um, I share a lot of music with those guys um, or whether it's W2 taxation, we bring it, we bring yeah. it back <laughs> and we get it and make a little movie or something. I don't know. It's, you know, snowboarding is a feeling mm-hmm. for me and, and I'm sure you can relate. It's just, it's huge. Uh, and I think about it all the time. It's crazy. I am the exact same way. Amazing. I wish I was able to get out there and snowboard more often. But I think, again, like you, I am a workaholic. So mm-hmm. I am, you know, constantly trying to work around other people's schedules, um, working with my own schedule, you know, like I said, the yeah. whole gig economy, like I'm very much like that with multiple jobs. But at the end of the day, snowboarding is like integral to the most pivotal moments of my life to the point where it is a part of my identity. I remember for a little while, I think it was going through college or maybe right after college where I was like, okay, I need to start dressing like an adult, you know, like I need to, <laughs> yeah. I need to start like, I don't know, button ups. I don't even, I don't know. I was, you know, cause I, mm-hmm. I, it's so foreign to me. And then now at 32, I'm still wearing, you know, like LibTech t-shirts and, yeah. you know, trans world snowboarder mag t-shirts and mm-hmm. you know blank t-shirts and hoodies and you know whatever it's like but i but the thing is it, it's like a superman costume you know you feel like yourself when you're in that yeah 100 percent. man it has really like what a what a amazing way to grow up you know where we did and how we did mm-hmm. and having even when we were a part of it all uh from like from from your dad's era to to ours was like a huge what do you call it evolution yeah and so cool to be a part of that i remember when boards were heavy as shit and the bindings only went one <laughs> direction <laughs> you know yeah and they had like three or four straps on them you know um yeah 
crazy, but so cool. And it, 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 yeah, has been and forever will be a part of my identity as well. Yeah, I'm forever grateful for snowboarding. It's been interesting and more often than not, like super rewarding, rewarding to see where people have ended up, you know, from those old borderline days yeah, where they have kind of spanned off and done their own thing. For instance, with you and your music or even um, Bertner, you know, uh-huh. uh, starting Think Tank and, and like literally making an entire movement in snowboarding, like um, the monumental achievements that he's made or Borgstead now with Blue and Gold or, you know, my brothers Jake and Derek with yeah. uh, Borderline Legacy and Juno. And it all, you know, spawned from that era. Yeah, that's one thing I actually was going to write down before I called or before this conversation was all of that. Like how it it's pretty amazing to see where we've all ended up or or, or how our lives are going. Um, I've reconnected with Micah Hollinger over the years. Like when he was in L.A., I was in L.A. and um, seeing him and his career really go different routes than you would expect too. like he's making amazing jewelry he's also doing production and still a ripping skater mm-hmm. and uh gus man i taught that kid how to snowboard in my neighbor's yard and now he's making awesome music you know yeah um it is so cool mm-hmm. well robbie this has this has been awesome man yeah, Cody, dude, it's always a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad we got to do this. You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Intro and theme music was produced by Alcoda Beats. Outro music is courtesy of Raw Beats.